certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Upon the discovery of Kira Glennon's body, a serial killer investigator was flown in from the United States to examine the crime scene. Welcome to week seven of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo joining you with legal affairs editor Tim Clark, who's calling in from court, and criminal lawyer Damien Cripps. When police called in these FBI-trained profilers, it really did speak volumes at the time, didn't it? That they thought that the, the, the um, seriousness of what was going on, absolutely. Yeah, and Tim, um, who were these people that were mentioned in court today? So, yeah, there were two, Nat. There's, um, there was a chap called Claude Minasini. Um, he was Victorian-based but had uh, some history with the WA police, um, particularly with his work um, with the then commissioner, Bob Falconer. Um, They were familiar to each other. Um, So he he was brought in first um, to to work uh, on the macro investigation um, around the time of Jane Rimmer's disappearance and then the discovery of of her body um, and and basically stayed involved all the way through to when uh, Kira went missing and then was her body was discovered. And then there was another uh, very expert um, chap called David Caldwell, who was based in America, uh, South Carolina of all places. He was a captain over there. Both these gentlemen had been trained by the FBI in, in the, the skills of profiling, but in different uh different areas i suppose mr minasini was more on the crime scene um style of of things and 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 what what a crime scene might be able to tell you whereas mr caldwell was a was your your classic profile i suppose uh, that that we're more aware of um through dramas and and movies and also now true crime and he he was a, a profiler in terms that he would gather all of the disparate threads of a, an investigation and then try and build up a picture of who who the person committing the crimes might be and so they were both involved and as it turned out and as we turned as we discovered in court today they were both actually in perth in person on the day that kira's body was discovered as it would happen and uh, and and so close and trusted and integral to the macro investigation were they that they were both brought in to uh, view the crime scene while Kira's body was still there and then probably even more surprising the following day they were both uh, permitted to attend the post-mortem uh, at the state mortuary where they both were on hand to observe that uh, obviously very important and very detailed piece of uh, forensic investigation and analysis. And Tim, do you remember at the time, um, they obviously created a bit of a profile of the type of person police were looking for. Do you have any recollection of of what they described? Well, looking back in the archives today and and, uh, some press conferences and some media that, that both men did, they both came up with what now would seem quite prescient uh, profiling uh, of the, the 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 man that they thought was involved. 
um, Mr. Minasini at the time that he was at uh, had attended Jane's Jane's crime scene um, said, in his view, the killer was very uh, organised, very meticulous, very controlled, uh, not a, a disorganised sort of random killer, uh, as as one might think a, a person who would do this might be. And then Mr. Caldwell, for his part, um, he went even further and actually gave a press conference or gave an interview to the ABC at the time of, of Kira's body's discovery. Um, and he he also listed various traits that he thought that this, this person would have. And they included uh, being uh, having access to a car, uh, and and more than that, being a, a sort of regular driver of a car, uh, who would also take care and, and meticulous um, attend, pay attention to that car in, in terms of its cleanliness. He said that his job would involve uh, um, being able to be not uh, uh, missed when uh, at night when when these things were occurring. Um, and also possibly have a uh, either be a living alone or having just recently uh, separated from a partner and also being away from family members and all those things uh, as all our listeners will probably know or regular listeners certainly all those things are what the prosecution say that were were facets of, of Bradley Robert Edwards Edwards his life at the time now obviously he is uh, only an uh, alleged killer at, at this time but from from the picture that the uh, the prosecution painted certainly in their opening you can go down that, that list those or those lists from both those profilers uh, and certainly pick out points that the prosecution have made to the points that were made more than 20 years ago by those two gentlemen Tim, can you tell us, you were there today, these um, two witnesses that you just uh, were talking about then, were, were they, did they come in on the basis they were expert witnesses? Well, that was, that, that was the thing, Damien. They weren't actually witnesses per se today. They, they came in, or, the, or their presence certainly came in through uh, the evidence of Inspector John Lee Brigham, who was a, a member of the Macro Task Force. Right. And he, he was asked... Uh, various questions about who was present at, at what times uh, particularly at the Kira's crime scene and and it was it was actually inspector Liebergen who was a detective at the time in macro that uh, escorted both Caldwell and Minasini to the, the crime scene and, and and close to the body and, and he was asked who they were and what their involvement was in the case um, and and that's how their involvement was was confirmed uh, in court today. But their, their involvement has been has, was was well documented at the time. Um, say looking back in the West Australian newspaper archives today, there was actually even a picture of them both together at, at, at Claremont, going sort of around the uh, around the area where both both women went missing so they were obviously well involved at the time and and, and as Inspector Liebergen recalled today were very very involved on the day and, and beyond. Um, Tim so just in relation to some of those personality traits that were raised about someone who may have been involved 
Mm. Um, potentially, I wonder how many of the listeners can tick those boxes. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's very true. I mean, anyone now would, would, would see themselves as an owner of a car or a driver of a car. <laughs> um, very bright. Um, organised. Organised, controlled, <laughs> professional. Many, many people are, are separated from partners, separated from family. So that were, I mean, they're, they're not hugely uncommon traits. You, you couldn't put it like that. But particularly the way that uh, Mr. Minasini described the, the killer as a control killer, as, as, as someone who, who was organized. Uh, and as we know, the prosecution alleged not only was Mr. Edwards organized, he was actually premeditating these attacks. He was, he, according to them, he was, he was out um, prowling, looking for victims, not stumbling across them um so i mean you're right damien it, 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 then it's not a unique individual that they're that they're describing there and actually well, that it, was it goes the, even the, further doesn't it tim like because they went even further to say that um this would be an everyday sort of a person a normal appearing person um you know probably very pleasant someone who would be the guy next door yeah, socially capable. Uh, you're a normal, everyday bloke, basically, and, and not what we might imagine to be a serial killer. Um, you know, not your Hannibal Lecter type. This is this is more your, you know, your Mr. Jones next door type, which is exactly what Mr. Minasini said. But that was actually criticised at the time, or a little bit later anyway, by, by other uh, criminal um, investigators and, and, and people who worked in that area, saying that this type of profiling at the time was was too general, it was too vague, and it might l even lead police down the wrong path. So even then, the, their, their involvement in the case was a little bit contentious having been brought in from outside, not being, you know, sworn police officers from Western Australia. But as we, as we started off, such was the magnitude, scale, intensity and interest in the case that uh, macro police were willing to spend money, spend resources and, and think a little bit outside the box in terms of what they, were, what, what they would use or the expertise they would use to, in their efforts to, to find whoever was, was taking these young women off the streets and killing them. Tim, sorry, Tim, Tim, just in relation to um, the two, uh, Mr Mincini and Mr Caldwell, did um, the superintendent give evidence about their report or did their report become part of the evidence matrix? Not, not as yet, Damien, no. Um, it, it was merely a, a continuity exercise today, as, a, as, as the vast majority of the forensic evidence has been, as to who had access to the crime scene first, who was close to the body, who was in attendance, and obviously that, that goes to both sides, as we've discussed many times, on continuity as to possible any source of, of possible contamination um, of exhibits and and of uh, of the bodies themselves and the crime scene themselves, but the, their actual findings, what they were telling police um, per se, hasn't hasn't come in yet, and we're we're not sure how much detail it will come in, um, but certainly their presence is a factor um, in terms of, of of the actual evidence itself.
so and exhibits in particular. Th- there is the possibility that they could be called as witnesses? Um, we're, we're not, not sure. We're not sure yet because uh, th- th- there is a, a there is a rough witness list and witness outline being given to the court and both sides, but it's not being. Uh, we're getting sort of daily updates in the morning, um, courtesy of the WA Police, who are very kindly sort of flagging which witnesses might be coming up on a daily basis. Um, but any further ahead than that, we're not being. Uh, we're not. Uh, privy to, um, so we're not we're not in, entirely sure whether they will become the, either of those gentlemen will become material witnesses um, uh, th- that will give their own recollection of their involvement. Damien, is there any weight given to something that a profiler had said in the past into a current case? Is that taken into consideration in any way, shape, or form? I think the answer to that has to be yes, depending on the way that that evidence would come into consideration. So um, that's why I was interested uh, for Tim to enlighten us as to how we got to a point where we were talking about um, those two gentlemen today and, and how they came up. Um, the, if, if they created a profile about who they believed was the person that was involved or the person that um, committed these offences, then and they were working on the case at the time and they came and gave evidence and their report went in it'd have to have some weight I, I, I would have thought would you agree Tim yeah I, I think it's it, it might when we get to the more senior macro detectives who we we do expect will give evidence that it, that might it might become more relevant then if if we go into the exploration of the direction that the uh, that the investigation took at various points uh, I think that might be interesting because then we'll get an insight into really how much weight the police were placing on these profiles when it came to, uh, you know, uh, issuing questionnaires, for instance, or w- whether they were used in any way to uh, rule out uh, su- potential suspects or rule in potential suspects. So I think that might be uh, that might be relevant when we when we get to the more senior. Um, macro investigators, but as it stands, as I said, at the moment, it's purely purely a con- continuity thing, an access to the body thing, and from the defence's point of view, a potential uh, contamination source of, of, of exhibits. What other involvement did um, Superintendent Liam Bruggen have with the crime scene? Yeah, quite quite a bit, Nat. Um, so, as I said, he was macro, so he was he was there when when. Uh, Jane was was missing and then found. It was it was he that that actually took custody of the knife that was discovered. Um, it was he that took custody of Jane's watch when that uh, came to light um, a, a week after her body did. Um, it was it, he was involved certainly in the uh, in the post mortem process um, of Kira. And he was also the um, he emerged today and, and, and had been public previously that he was the uh, the police liaison officer uh, who was charged with keeping the Rimmer family uh, up to date on all the developments um, that wasn't explored as such today. It, he, he was just asked, you know, 
what roles did you play? But he was he was he was one of the senior detectives. Um, he he was actually in charge of a little team of of detectives and sworn officers um, that were working on several lines of inquiry. So quite high up um, in macro, and uh, he, he's certainly still high up in West Australian Police. He's an inspector now, which is one of the highest ranks you can reach. He's actually in charge of um, the, the police air wing in Western Australia at the moment, which is which is the uh, the airborne division of, of the police, and which is obviously given the vast uh, area that Western Australia covers is, is a particularly important uh, job um, that, he, that, he, that he's doing right now. Was he, uh, you said he was uh, present at um, the, at Kira Glenn's crime scene. Mm-hmm. Did he happen to see who collected this pristine sample of hair, the RH17 that we've spoken so much about that the collection of is missing in the video footage? Was he asked about that? Uh, no, he wasn't, but there, there, there were, there were, there was some involvement there because he was, um, jotting down and note taking on some of the, uh, uh, the evidence in terms of that it being labeled, um, and RH17 was one of the, uh, the exhibits that he took custody of, which was then handed off. Um, to forensic officers, uh, but no, he couldn't. He, again, he, he really couldn't shed any light on 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 who it was that actually took that sample and and at the precise moment it was taken and and, and what happened to it. But we are told, going back to giving, being given notice of what's to come um, next week, the Path West um, staff members and, and senior staff members. Uh, are slated to to give some evidence, um, and and we think that will be uh, be one of the main issues that they will be um, questioned about. Um, certainly about what happened after it, or after that hair sample, that pristine hair sample came into their custody, and and then ha- how it was stored for for all those years after. Was there any um, anomalies that you heard that ar- arose out of um, uh, Jane Rimmer's? Uh, burial site or her post-mortem um no not 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 really um another of the witnesses that gave evidence today was another of the um uh, the mortuary technicians a, a chap called greg paul um and he was again very involved in kira's um post-mortem um, and there were a couple of things there that um, the defence really did try to try to pin him down on because he again was seen in the video that was that was taken of that post mortem, um, and he, the questioning of him again went to processes within the mortuary, cleanliness, uh, you know, things that were um, done that maybe shouldn't have been done. Uh, there were. A, couple of instances where he was he said well no i wouldn't have, i definitely wouldn't have done that because that wasn't the process but then the defense took him through the video at one point he, he can be seen um holding a, a an orange sponge which he said oh no i i, I don't even remember them being in the mortuary let alone using them and at, at one point he puts the sponge on the ground and then picks it up again there's some debris on his gloves which he was asked whether he that he wiped that debris with that sponge after it had been on the floor. Um, there was another point 
um, where he was um, questioned about a towel that he'd actually, it sounded like he draped it over his neck as maybe a, you know a tennis player at the Australian Open that, that started today might do um, although we could again we couldn't see that on the video so I'm only going by the description of that um, so there were some little things there that the defence had obviously gone through second by second minute by minute on that post-mortem video and, 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 and picked out just just little things that going back to the opening the, this neat picture of everyone doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing at exactly the right time uh, the defence maybe roughing up the edges a little bit on, on, on some of the practices um, around the uh, around the post-mortem, post-mortem of, of Kira So this is um, Graham Paul, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yes. and so he um, was talking quite a lot to the video, wasn't he? But it almost had that sense that um, you know, they would test his independent memory, play the video, which would then, in a way, uh, contradict his recollection. Mm. Yeah, there was a little bit of that and that. Um, and Mr. Jovic, Paul Jovic, the, Mr. Edwards' defence barrister, has been very, very particular and pointed about getting witnesses to say what they remember first before their memory being jogged by notes or running sheets, or in this case, the video. Um obviously trying to prove the point that what you should have done and what you what you were used to doing might not actually have been what you did on the day and and mr paul to his credit was was quite open when he said yeah i do not remember holding that sponge seeing that sponge putting it on the floor picking it up it again at one point he was asked whether he'd rinsed it in the sink or not and whether the timings are right because there were several sinks in the mortuary so they're really really going into the fine fine detail of that post-mortem using the video as the as, as the ground zero for, for what actually happened and then testing a, a witness's reliability to build up a picture maybe to come of well they said they did this one thing and then the video showed that they did another mm. so how reliable can the rest of the uh, evidence um, possibly be it's it's really important for people to understand tim during that process a lot of the time in court it feels like people um like mr paul or um, mr mcdermott are coming under criticism it's not the case that they're coming under criticism it's just we're trying to get to the bottom or the the judicial system is trying to get to the bottom of whether the practices can measure up. So the processes, a lot of the processes that I've heard of during the course of this um, trial certainly are dated. So it's not the case that the prosecution or the defence are criticising the people at hand. It's just a case of trying to get to the bottom of whether um, they can satisfy that ultimate question of reasonable doubt. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair, Damien, and I'm sure some of the witnesses might feel that they're, they're, they're being picked on a little As bit. As they often but, would. Yeah, but uh, to be also to be fair, certainly <coughs> um, Genevieve Cleary, um, Mr. Um, Jovic's, um, <coughs> excuse me, offsider, was was uh, quite open in saying, I do, I do not mean to criticise, this is not meant as an affront to your preference professionalism, all those type of things when she was questioning last week. Um, obviously, that's a little bit of a tactic, so, so the, the, the witness presumably doesn't get uh, uh, grumpy and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit defensive. Um, and I, so, yeah, I, I'm sure they do feel like there's, at points they're being, but they're being targeted a little bit, but uh, I think Damien's point is absolutely fair that they're only trying to get to the absolute um, 
truth and, and, and nub of the matter of, of what happened on the day. Would this yeah. sort of questioning happen more in a case like this where you are looking back so far that um, the defence is testing the person's memory in a way, like Tim, Tim mentioned, and less so if it was something more recent? I think the best way for um, the listeners to think about that is that if, if, if defence see an opening to create a reasonable doubt, that's our job. So if, if there's something that's standing out where somebody potentially should have an answer for and they don't, it doesn't really matter why they don't have an answer. If they don't have an answer, then that creates that opening for reasonable doubt. Um, so the, the, the short answer is yes. You, you know, you would jump on that opportunity. So every one of these um, minor, even if they are minor inconsistencies, all add up through the course of this trial? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Is he allowed to do no comment? I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm constantly a- answering questions that might be um, persuasive in the defence's favour. I am a citizen of Western Australia who ultimately wants to know the answer to this question as well. So um, I'm just in a world where I constantly work in an environment where we're um, potentially working against somebody being convicted. So. I, I ho- hope that I can offer insight into p- for, for the listeners into how somebody in that mindset would be thinking during the process of this, mm. um, but still no comment. <laughs> yeah, and that and that just that uh, thing of picking holes in someone's work. I, I think that's going to become even more relevant later this week. We were given notice this this morning that later on this week we will be hearing from Doctor. Clive Cook and Dr. Jerry Cadden, who were two of the pathologists that worked on this case. But we also know, obviously, that Dr. Karen Margolius was the the, the chief um, pathologist who, who carried out both post-mortems. We've also discussed that Ms. 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 Margolius passed away in 2010, so she's not the, she's not available to give evidence. But her very detailed post-mortem reports still exist obviously and what we understand is because Dr Cook and Dr Cadden were also present they can be asked not only about what they did but as expert witnesses we understand they will be asked about Dr Margolis's reports and so I would imagine that there might be a few questions of both Dr Cadden and Dr Cook about what they think of the um, the results and the conclusions that Dr. Margolius came up with, um, and if the defence feels, I'm sure that, that some of those um, conclusions are in error, then and then both those doctors might be asked some pointed questions about their colleague, which which might make for some interesting cross examination to come. Mm. Tim, you also heard today from another officer who attended both the burial site and the post-mortem of Kira Glennon, and he detailed some of her injuries. Yes. So this is a de- Detective Borden, who was um, a homicide detective at the time, um, still a serving police officer, senior serving police officer now. Um, he was again on hand at Kira's post-mortem, um, and his role at the time was or one of his main roles on that day was to note down on some 
avatars, so some 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 pictures, pictorial representations of of, of a body, of of what Dr. Margolius was was noting and pointing out, and it was his job to note those down on these avatars as he went, and there were actually nine pages of them. Um, and notes that he'd made, very detailed notes of, uh, that he'd made of particular things that Dr. Margolius wanted him to note down were detailed in court today. Um, uh, they were uh, at times quite distressing to hear um, it, in, in terms of, of, of injuries, of decomposition, um, of, of parts of the, the body missing due to decomposition, um, but also noteworthy that he, he it was he that noted all the fingernails that were taken particularly as we discussed late last week the, the left thumbnail that had been torn away which is such a crucial piece of evidence um pieces of jewelry that were missing um uh, and you know basically making a pictorial representation of what Dr. Margolius was, was noting in real time. And uh, because he was the man who made those uh, notes and made those sketches, he was the one who, who was asked to, who was asked to detail them today. So um, that was, that was some of the first real detail of, of, of uh, the injuries that, that Kira um, had, had suffered. But, we haven't what we haven't gone into in detail yet is the actual neck uh, defect that, um, that 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 Dr. Margolis w- was most interested in, and what what uh, what we think is going to be the cause of death. We've had um, many listeners of this podcast emailing and asking us if there's any evidence that uh, Kira or Jane were sexually assaulted. Was there anything revealed in uh, Mr Borden's testimony today about that or not yet? No, um, and from what we understand from the opening, because it hasn't been raised uh, in the opening, I mean, there were, there were certainly intimate swabs taken from both, um, but there was there has been and so we pretty much know there will what there won't be evidence of a sexual assault um, now that's not to say that one didn't occur but certainly what we have been told quite consistently is the levels of decomposition of, of both uh, Jane and Kira because they were left out in the elements for so long um, is that they the, both bodies were quite significantly decomposed um so we, we might anticipate some questioning later on about what that decomposition might do to any uh, any intimate samples um or, or any evidence that might have existed um but it's also obviously not for the uh, prosecution to to get people to guess or, or certainly um, bring up evidence that basically isn't there and so he's not going to help the judge um, so that's a quite a long answer it, it, probably what is a sh- short should be a short answer in that it, there no there isn't any explicit evidence to come about um, sexual assaults on either Kira or Jane. Well, I hope that answers the question because uh, people are um, making that link, of course, and and Mm. saying, okay, well, if Mr Edwards has pleaded guilty to the Huntingdale attack and the Karakata rape, um, you know, is there any evidence with the three girls that went missing? But, of course, as you've explained, that's unable to be answered. Mm. 
Yeah, um, and and and, ca- and certainly can't be speculated on either because it just does not help Justice Hall in his in his task. Uh, well, if let there me, isn't any evidence to to bring. Tim, let me be difficult. That's where you're meant to say, please do. <laughs> well, I know you're going to be difficult, baby, and that's, that's why well, we get well, you have already said Monday. no comment <laughs> today, so we're not very happy with you already. I'm, I'm, I can live with a level of unhappiness. That's okay. Um, but just to, to potentially help the listeners a little bit further, uh, and the question is, um, is there any evidence of a sexual assault? Do I understand? Is that the, And from what I can tell from what Tim said, there isn't. So there's no reason why there's not or anything. The, the question's quite simply that there isn't. And you, if, you, if you are a listener and you're trying to get to the bottom of this and you're enjoying the ride, and I know it's a horrible ride for the context of what it is, but if you, you are following along with a view to um, following along, which can be difficult at times, um, put that to the side because there is no evidence it shouldn't be something you need to think about at the moment what we're trying to get to the bottom of is whether the person who's got the accusation um, took these people's lives so that that's the the, the question at the forefront so um, if it, and Tim would you, would you be comfortable in what I just said oh absolutely yeah. I mean, uh, so, uh, you, you probably put it a lot more succinctly than, than I j- just did uh, I, I was trying to get to the context of where the question was coming from and we know where the question comes from but uh, yeah I mean there, there just simply isn't any evidence um, from any of the physical exams taken of, of either body um, to to uh, to say that there was and so the simple answer is no there wasn't or there isn't any evidence to go there. Well to continue with this theme today that we're making everything difficult for you, Damien. We actually have some difficult um, listener questions as well, I think. Um, one of the questions we've had is, would Paul Jovic have sat down with Bradley Edwards at any time and asked him if he did it? I imagine that would need to be asked so that he can plan the best defence and potentially know what areas need to be focused on and what areas need to be avoided. Is this actually something that a barrister or solicitor would ask their client and would a client be likely to answer truthfully? I can't speak for Mr Jovic, and I can't speak for the process that he went through. I'm sure all the listeners understand that. Um, but I can offer some insight into to a couple of things. Firstly, I think most solicitors and barristers operate very uniquely. Um, there's rules that we have to follow, and there's requirements that we have to meet. Um, in my experience of discussing it with other solicitors and other barristers, I noticed that other people's techniques are different to mine. However... I wouldn't have thought that your starting point with a client for anyone would be, did you do it? Because I would have thought that the best starting point would be to say, this is the evidence and this is what it means to you in the context of what they're alleging against you. The decision then is to whether you take in some instructions in relation to um, the evidence or you make some more inquiries about the evidence depends on the, the case at hand. But ultimately... You, I think you, it would be poignant for any barrister or solicitor to explain to their client what the evidence means in the context of their guilt or otherwise. And then they could have and potentially give them the opportunity to answer any questions arising from the evidence and eventually work to a point where they could um, give them a sort of advice about whether any defences exist. So... Um, and when we talk about defences, we're not talking about necessarily just um, self-defence or provocation or any of those kind of defences. A defence might be, 
I didn't do it. A defence might be I wasn't there. A defence, there's a number of defences. So the starting point is this is what the evidence says. This is what it legally means to you. What can you say about that? And then we'll see if there's any defences available. So I hope, hopefully that gives yeah. some insight to um, the listener in relation to that. Yeah, I think it is one of those questions that um, people do ask quite often, not to do with this case necessarily, but all cases, because it is a bit of an enigma to people that, um, you know, that process with a defence lawyer and their client. Occasionally I get out to social gatherings and the first thing people ask me is, what do you do if you client did it that's right well, if your client did it we play guilty of course <laughs> well, what's, 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 it's so simple um what if they won't tell you they did it well if they won't tell us they did it well then we played not guilty i mean you know it's it's not that straightforward it's not that cut and dry but um i think the way that i just explained it then would give some people some insight yep. another listener is wondering what the legality is with the detectives having retrieved the dna from the Sprite bottle at the cinema. There's a lot of talk around contamination. How do they know if they got the correct bottle? What if he'd shared the bottle with someone else? Uh, do they have to have reasonable suspicion in order to surveil and obtain the evidence? Or could the police do this to anyone? Okay, so I can just see um, listeners, when this first came out in the in the trial, I could see people going, I'm not going to the cinema, that's it, it's over. All the movie sales had plummeted, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Leonardo had a new film out at the time and, you know, everyone was rushing out to see it, but we didn't drink Sprite, did we? We all took our own drinks from home and took the bottles home with... The, the legalities of that are, are, are pretty complex and I would say that... I can't say for certain, but I'm working on, on, on the basis that once you put something into the bin, it's abandoned. Um, so there's a few legal principles working there, and, and I don't have the Evidence Act to hand as into how the police might be able to come into the possession of that. But um, let's assume, let's move forward on this question, assuming that the police were, um, were able to take the bottle and test it. The, the question then goes to a question of, as Tim will know, um, continuity as to whether they followed all the processes to get that bottle back to the lab and have it tested. But then there's other questions that arise, you know, even though they might have seen the right person put the bottle in the bin, we don't know what happened to the bottle before the person got to um, the bin. And so the, all those things would have to be tested in a trial environment. And that's where um, essentially the question of this comes back down to the strength of the police evidence to support that that DNA is the person's DNA that they, they are saying it at. And this is the fantastic issue about all these kinds of things. They just need to be tested. So um, that, hopefully that answers that um, question for the listener but I think my instinct tells me that the listeners want to know whether you if you leave that bottle in the bin can the police appropriately take that and test it um, so I'll take that question on advisement and next week I'll have uh, um, a, a, an answer about a, about that but my instinct tells me that I think once you've left something behind in the bin it's open to be taken. You would think so. It's not like you're needing to execute a search warrant to, you know, to go into someone's private property. So you would think so. That's right. And and another thing that just arises to my mind then, um, Nat, is that there's cross-contamination issues right there in the bin. Once you've put your, you, you, you know, your bottle into the bin, I mean, there's all sorts of other things going on in there. So um, there's a lot of issues with it. I'll just add a little couple of addendums there. One, I'll be uh, Damien's law clerk and... and say surreptitious sampling I, I did 
have a little look at before the trial started, and I think that's how it's uh, categorised in law. I think there is some case law in Australia to suggest that it is okay for police to do that, but it's certainly more contentious in the US. Um, And as per this trial, um, Mr Jovic has actually said in court that he's not going to challenge the, the validity of the arrest because what they what the police then did once they arrested Mr Edwards was they took a buckle swab, which is the little swab inside the cheek, and sent that off. Um, and, and, and that's the pure piece of DNA that they relied on to actually charge Mr Edwards. So it was a case of using a Sprite bottle to get reasonable cause to arrest him and bring him in, and then they, they took the DNA. But it's certainly an interesting legal question, and in another context would be an absolutely uh, live question in any trial if that was the only DNA that you were relying on to, to, uh, to accuse someone of, of such a horrible crime. Okay, well, if you can bear with us for one last question, Damien. Listening to the degree of absolute detail being covered over every aspect of the finding of the girls' bodies so far makes me wonder about beyond reasonable doubt. I'm just wondering if in the panel's experience of other murder trials they have covered, is this level of scrutiny and detail applied to other accused persons? Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't have thought that anybody gets any special treatment, um, and I don't even think the fact that... I don't know, and remember I used the word think because I'm, I'm speculating. <clears throat> when I say I'm speculating, I, I haven't worked on all the cases and I haven't been in the people's minds and the prosecutors' and defence minds, but even in a case like this where there's three victims, I wouldn't have thought the level of scrutiny on the accused here was any le- different to the pers- a, a case where there was only one victim. I think the, the beyond reasonable doubt, all of the prosecutors um, in this environment know what they have to do and they will tick every box that they can Um, so the answer to the question is yep it seems like uh, a huge amount of detail has gone into getting this together I think that's the case for any murder murder trial. I think the reality is rarely do us the general public hear these details in such great detail that's that's the point absolutely Well, thank you both for your time today. I think that brings us to the end of day 28 and thank you for joining us. For more details, head to thewest.com.au. We'll be back tomorrow with Alison Fan and Tim will talk to you tomorrow. Uh, See you then for day 29 of Claremont in Conversation. Bye for now. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiorlo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.